Welcome to the Startups Roundtable podcast, where we discuss the science and art of startups with founders and the broader startup community. I'm Tony Hackett, and I've spent over a third of my B2B sales career either working for early stage startups or as a go-to-market and social selling mentor for founders and their teams. In each episode, we will explore various topics, including decision-making, team-building, and growth strategies. Before we meet today's guest, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. Here in Sydney, it's the Gadigal people. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attending today. Today, my guest is Jan Gasparic, co-founder of Fairmark, where their technology and services empower communities by accelerating local commerce. They do this by building products that remove the operational complexities of running a local store. And in doing so, they support the digital transformation of small businesses, which as we know, are the backbone of every major economy. So let's get to it and meet Jan. Hi, Tony. Thanks so much for having us here. My name is Jan. I'm the CEO of Fairmart and happy to tell you a little bit about how, how we got here. I'm originally Slovenian, but I've been spent most of my professional and personal life around uh, Southeast Asia. And uh, two years ago, I co-founded Fairmart. And uh, Fairmart is a community commerce company. It's our mission to essentially drive more commercial transactions within your local neighborhood. But yeah, I co-founded the company with my business partner and co-founder, Daniil. What originally turned us on to the problem was just how difficult it is to find a specific product in your neighborhood. So uh, happy to tell you a little bit more about that. But um, it seems like a very simple problem. But the deeper we dug into it, like the more apparent was this is a challenge that a lot of everyday communities face and a lot of businesses face as well. So let's dig into that in a moment. But I've got to say, and I feel obliged to timestamp when you say we started a couple of years ago, what that actually means is you started at the start of COVID. And that brings with it a lot of implicit and explicit challenges. What did it feel like at the time? And how did you stay the course? Oh, great question. First of all, my co-founder and I, we met in Entrepreneur First. So that's a local talent incubator here in Singapore. And essentially what they do is that it's about a group of 60 people. Half of them are technical, half of them are business oriented. You're supposed to come in and essentially brainstorm ideas and you have three months to come up with something. And that was flat in the middle of COVID. So uh, I met him even essentially before the start of the program. And we started to brainstorm different uh, projects that we could work together. But the early days, uh, he was based in New Zealand. I was based in Hong Kong. So we started the company completely remotely. We were shipping like hardware prototypes back and forth, you know, a lot of hours on Zoom. So in, in that sense, our genesis was very much uh, of the age of COVID. But the problem that we're solving has been around for a long time. And I think it's been faced by business for, for some time. Just COVID accelerated in the sense that there was an ever more urgent need for physical retailers to be able to digitize their business. And that can mean a lot of things. Digital does not necessarily mean only e-commerce, but they definitely need to have a digital presence and have a digital strategy that supports them being a retail business. So with COVID driving a certain amount of thinking and your programmatic approach, is it also fair to say that the upside of you starting around the beginning of COVID is that we all became a little bit more aware and in touch with our local communities? Yeah, probably by due to a sense of absence because we were suddenly cut off and we had to rebuild these relationships in a digital manner. But one thing that we did to you know, give you a sense of just kind of what happened in terms of shopper behavior is globally, a lot of traditional behaviors in the sense of how people went about finding their goods and so on 
whether it was groceries or things for their hobbies, a lot of those interactions suddenly went digital. For, for anybody who hadn't previously experienced online e-grocery shopping, you definitely did during COVID at some point, right? Even my parents are in their 70s like that. They, they've made the conversion and I don't think they're going back. You know, like they save a lot of time that way. So post-COVID, shopper behaviors are absolutely digital and that's, that's here to stay. But that doesn't mean that all shopper behaviors uh, are only within the digital realm. And what I mean by this is that very common journey today is that people will start a search through online. They'll search for a specific product online, expecting to find it in the physical world. And oftentimes, when you do this, you will actually only see online e-commerce listings. Especially here in Singapore, you'll see like a lot of shopping, Lazada, even though your local neighborhood store might have, actually have that, that product. But because your local stores aren't digitizing their inventory, they're not coming up in, in those search results. COVID made that extremely apparent, but even post-COVID, that digital behavior for shoppers is here to stay. The world that you live in, I expect that you, uh, you're at the risk of being overwhelmed with data, being able to analyze trends, demographic patterns, so on and so forth. How quickly or how readily do you allow your own feel or intuition to come into your decision making and, and strategy setting? Good question. And when we started Fairmart, you know, it, it first started off definitely on a hunch or a feel. Where it's like, hey, like, if I'm searching for this product, why can't I see the local store? Why is this so difficult? You know, and it's kind of like a hmm. And it starts off that. And then we started to put some data to that. Like, well, okay, like how many retailers are there? It's like, oh, oh my gosh, it's actually a huge market. I believe in Southeast Asia, the market is something like 670 billion annual turnover for physical retail. So it's an enormous market compared to e-commerce, which is within like the 30 or so billion. So we saw that by by any measurement, physical retail even today was the majority of the market. And in most spaces, roughly about 95% of all transactions still happen in the physical world. It's just that very few people were building for that segment and solving for that segment. And, they had, uh, and stores had few digital tools that were built around the way that they work. So I think it's important to have both. Like hunches are great to, and intuition is a great way to sort of start your thinking process. But you want to, you definitely want to back that up with, with the data over time. And this feeds into our product development process as well. How do you go about growing your customer base and going and convincing people to think about you as a, a pathway to profitability? When we first started Fairmart, first we, we just noticed that, hey, we do these searches, local searches, we don't see local stores. So we wanted to go and talk to the local stores. What's their realities? How are they experiencing this? And they're like, yeah, you know, we try to go online, but like for a typical retail store, they would have, they generally have like around 1,500, 2,000 plus unique products. They, they're very SKU heavy to use the industry terminology. And that compares to a home-based business or an online only business, which might have only like maybe 200, 300 products. What we quickly found is that for a lot of stores, you know, even pre-COVID, they're more or less sold on the fact that like, hey, we need to have some sort of digital presence. You know, retail is still where I, they generate most of their revenue, but they need to have some way to have a digital presence to drive in-store transactions. That was very clear for them. But what they found is that, hey, like the tools available to them today, all they could do was just a manual list products uh, online. So that was our first thing. Like, okay, like if we want to work for these customers, we need to build a product around the way the customer works and uh, build it to their realities. And that's how we ended up with our workflow of automatically scanning products and then software that digitizes them and puts them online. So you're bringing uh, not just a new channel to market for businesses, but you're helping them improve their processes as well. Is that what you're describing? Absolutely. And very common misconception is that, first of all, that digital is the same as e-commerce. It is not. 
You can use digital to drive in-store transactions. You absolutely can. Google Maps is a great example of that, where we're doing search software searches to find something in the real world. And to unpack some of those assumptions for stores is, is extremely important. So when we go in, we, we tell our, our story, but we try to put it into their perspective. Say, hey, your life is like this today. And if you want to grow your business online, it's very important that you're able to be able to use digital tools to also drive your in-store transactions, not just online transactions. As a co-founder, we all bring our own biases and preference and strengths and joys to our roles. I'm curious to, so two-parter for you, what is it that you love doing? And then how have you been able to convince yourself not to procrastinate on something that you have to do that you actually don't love doing? Wow, great, great question. What do I love doing? I love the product side of things. I love being able to you know, map out a process and then being able to essentially build technology that makes that process more efficient and digitizes it. Um, and then seeing that being put to use is incredibly rewarding. What do, what do I dislike? I mean, you know, doing a startup, you're always getting hit from all sorts of sides in terms of all the different things that you need to do. But one of the things that nobody ever tells you about, just like the massive amount of administration work that you have around like running a business. And it's super unexciting, but like the nuts and bolts of your business are very important and something you don't really see in, a, in the corporate world. That's definitely not a side that I particularly enjoy, but it's, you know, part and parcel of what you need to do in order to keep the ship moving. It's interesting you say that. It just reminded me of an earlier guest I had, Tim Demetrio from Pencil Pay. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I, I might have alluded to the excitement of a startup. And Tim said, he didn't say this, but he kind of said, you're missing the point. It's hard work. <laughs> I'm sort of summarizing it and bad paraphrasing, but it was like, yeah, it is. And the innovation's a little bit, a version of what you just said. The innovation's fun and all the excitement's fun. But at some point, you got to realize it is a business. And just every day, there's stuff you got to do is running a business. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's just, you know, there's no, uh, you're kind of stuck running most of the things yourself, especially in the early days. So being able to understand um, what your priorities are, picking your battles, and just trying to phase things out a little bit. Like I feel a lot of people get stuck with trying to solve too many things at once, and it's easy to uh, get discouraged and overwhelmed in the process. So you got to take things, uh, take things day by day, take things step by step. That's an interesting point. So the whole decision making is something that I suppose in a way it kind of fascinates me. And I'm, I'm always wanting to understand if you went back two years, are you a better decision maker today than you were two years ago? Gosh, I certainly hope so, but I don't know if I have the data to, to back that up. Ah, you got me. I was going to ask you that. So I wanted a fact. <laughs> yeah. So experience, obviously more experienced. Yeah, learned learn a lot. So I used to work at, at DJI for five years, and it's the world's biggest manufacturer of commercial and consumer drones. And one thing that our CEO always alluded to there was that um, innovation is an empirical process in the sense that you really do need to experiment. You need to test how things work in the wild. And oftentimes, when you're trying to build something from the ground up, you make a lot of inherent assumptions or you miss bits of uh, how a customer might, what, what the customer's life essentially is. And like, you don't live their life. And if you're lucky enough to live their life, then yeah, maybe you can catch some of these things. But in many cases, like you, there's just a lot of empirical context that you do not have until you get something out there and see what happens. And this process of getting something out and seeing what happens is very obviously nerve wracking. I have very, very strong memories of our first customer conversations where we're moving from like essentially experiments to getting our first paying customers, you know, and that's kind of a very serious moment of truth. And then, gosh, you know, I kind of, are we really ready? Can we, should we delay it some more? Da, da, da. But like, you got to kind of pull out the band-aid sooner or later and see where you're at, right? So in, in terms of decision-making, 
we're not even close to mastering it. But I think it, when we look at our approach, we think it's the right one just because we see that feedback and evolve our product from that. I hope that we're improving our decision-making process. I think we definitely are. But that empirical feedback loop is super important. But at the same time, you know, when you're building a company, you're, of course, trying to project out five, 10 years. You uh, are, of course, making a lot of assumptions based on certainties, assumed certainties when they may not be that case. And of course, reality is also changing. Your mar- the market is changing, like it's not a static thing. So the environment that you're working in is also, uh, and the circumstances that you're working in are changing. Like you saw a lot of COVID-related startups that came out where, and are they going to be able to sustain their business post-COVID when we go to some sort of a, a more normal world? It'll be, it'll be interesting. Right? But yeah, for us, you know, in terms of making decisions, just trying to move quickly, getting feedback, um, and then involving that out is, um, is critical and a core part of our process. You mentioned before about um, Accelerator and, and startup programs. Would you recommend that to other early stage founders? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Entrepreneur First, I think, was a great one for us because, you know, it's a great program where you want to go down the path of creating a company and, and just, you know, finding a co-founder. Finding a technical co-founder is probably one of the most difficult things that any startup will will go through. And unless you have somebody immediate that you can pull from your network and somebody you know that's good and you trust, you kind of have to go go out of cold. And uh, Entrepreneur First is a great program for getting around that. And it gives you a great format in terms of understanding the K, what do early stage investors look for? How should you think about early stage ventures? How do you generate proof points? And how do you tell a story around that? Like all that is super useful. It's not necessarily right for every single startup, but for the stage that we were at, because I didn't have a co-founder, I wanted to start a company. I didn't have a very specific idea of like the area that I wanted to focus on, but I wanted to kind of go through the process and take this on. An accelerator like Entrepreneur First is great. And then after that, I went to an incubator called uh, Hack. So they're specifically related to hardware, but you know their role is to um, help you accelerate just the development of your hardware, where you go from a concept to an early stage prototype. And for many early stage hardware oriented startups, they can struggle with that early stage hurdle. So having having the expertise and support from that community was was very helpful for us. Yeah, and when you think about strategy and you look at sort of that horizon one, horizon two, horizon three, could I maybe get you to comment in that horizon two field and maybe comment around where you think retail will be and the role for Fairmart in that world? There's a common misconception that digital is the same as e-commerce. It is not. Physical retail is digitally enabled today. Use digital POS systems, you use digital payment systems. The experience is very, very much digital today. So the bit where we come in it's like, hey, how can we digitally enable these stores? And the specific angle for us is the inventory, is visibility of inventory online. So that when you search for specific products, you actually see local stores. And for example, even larger platforms like Google and Facebook, a lot of their business is based off of SME customers. So they, they want SMEs to be successful on their platforms. But a key way for a local retailer to stand out from the pack is based on the unique uh, products that they carry. And of course, their proximity to the customer. To put it very simply, Fairmart facilitates that. We facilitate that by um, automatically digitizing their inventory and making that available online. The interesting thing you you raised there that caught my attention, I think about the, the banks in Australia and the battlefield. It feels to me, at least my interpretation over the last, well, for many years, but certainly the last two years even heightened is around small to medium business seems to be a a true battleground. If I think about the Australian marketplace, one of the major banks is the dominant market share owner of the youth market. 
but they're small to medium business and people are going hammer and tongs to try and secure that. So there's opportunity there. The payment side of it is obviously what the, the banks are looking at. Do you look at payments in a very particular lens or you think about it just as a component of the digitization? We take a look at it from uh, just as a component of the digitization. Broadly in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of digital wallets and digital payment providers. A lot of investment has gone into that even pre, pre-COVID. pre In terms of inventory visibility, like nobody has really touched that per se. Like the best, the state-of-the-art solutions is manually uploading products rather than integrating with the workflow of physical stores to automatically list things online. And there's a specific reason for it. Like it's it's a technically hard problem to solve. It's not It's not easy. And there's a lot of variability we don't necessarily see see with payments. But for us, when we look at you know the future of digital retail, of modern 21st century digital retail post-COVID, it is, first of all, it's definitely physical. That's not going away. E-commerce will continue to grow, but are we going to lose every single physical store out there? I really don't think so. Like in my, my bet, and the bet of Fairmart is that that's not going to happen. And I think the data supports that. And one of the interesting data points that we see is that, um, so Fairmart supports both in-store transactions and e-commerce as well. One of the interesting things is that we see a six times higher conversion rate for in-store queries. So when people look for directions to the store, they can WhatsApp and chat with the store. That is a much higher conversion rate than uh, people just buying online and getting it delivered. I think that's very interesting because especially in a market like Singapore, if you want to buy something online, it's a fairly solved problem. You're, there's a whole bunch of different marketplaces that you can buy from. But if you want to know like, hey, I'm out in my neighborhood, which store has which product in stock? That is not clear. And that is where Fairmark comes in. And that's uh, where we see this higher rate of conversion for in-store transactions. What are the categories of services that you provide to your customers? We're an early stage startup, so we try to keep things as, as simple as possible. But when a customer signs on to Fairmark, what happens is that we give them our IoT device, which is a simple barcode scanner that they install in store, and they plug it into their POS. And that essentially gives us a real-time feed of the products that are available in that store. The core part of our company is software that will automatically take those barcodes and generate online product listings and display them in a simple digital storefront. So from the perspective of the store manager, like they use this device on a day-to-day basis. They're using a barcode scanner scanner anyway as part of the checkout process every day so that's they don't have to change anything in their workflow they just use a hard device instead as a result of this they're able to list all their products online now if they want to go the whole hog and and start supporting e-commerce we have the infrastructure to support that but if they just want to use those listings to get people in store that's also available your co-founder when you met was in new zealand you were in hong kong and you're now in singapore is your co-founder there as well Yes, absolutely. We both relocated to Singapore to pursue this full time. And what made Singapore the right place for you to be based? In terms of a hub for Southeast Asia, Singapore is you know, second to none for, to be in Singapore. But there is a lot of support from the government in terms of technology startups, really substantial support, both in terms of uh, starting up a business, how easy it is to do that. It's generally fairly low touch in terms of administrative burden and your filings and so on. And then the third would just be the uh, investor community. There's a very substantial investor community here. And if you're looking to build up a technology startup like for Southeast Asia, this is really the place to do it. As compared to Hong Kong or New Zealand, which were our other options, this is definitely the, the far more advantageous place. 
question that's kind of associated with the accelerators and the like before that I like to pose as we get to the tail of our conversations around mentors and coaches. Could I ask you to share your experience? And if there was somebody listening to this right now, they're thinking about a startup and they might be thinking about getting underway. What would be your learnings and recommendations about finding the best mentors and coaches to help? We were very lucky in the sense that we had two great uh, advisors as part of the company. Both had very substantial experience that they could advise us on. When you have a few years of working experience behind you, you definitely have an advantage there because you have a network to pull on and can bring people in. And that helps you just develop the business in in a different way. But you definitely want to find people that, of course, have relevant experience um, that you have ideally some sort of professional working history with because then you understand you understand the context of their experience, if you know what I mean, and also their levels of expertise, what they're good at, what, what some of their weaknesses might, might be. So professional context definitely helps a lot. In the absence of that, you know, I think just taking it slow. If somebody's generally interested to mentor or advise your business, your business, they will take the time to learn about you both as people, learn about you, you and the business that you're building, and over time, you can build that rapport with them. And then lastly, with the way that we handled it is that we had very specific asks and goals in mind when we were working with our advisors and our mentors. So we wrote them down, you know, we have an informal agreement. And that helps a lot just in terms of just setting expectations for everybody and also, you know, getting people to invest in that commitment too. One thing that you've triggered in my mind, do you think there's a place for almost stages of mentors and coaches? So maybe whatever stage it is you're moving through, it's not about picking and staying with the one mentor or the the small set that you started with all the way through? Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely different mentors for different stages. And the the best coaches and mentors aren't going to have the answers for you, but they help you ask the right questions. Because frankly, you're the only one who's going to have the full picture and it's your job to make as a founder to make those decisions anyway. But they can act as great sounding boards and help you zoom out a little bit and take a little bit of a bigger picture and get a sense of like, hey, like, am I just operating with my blinders on and just too focused on this one single problem? Or should I move past that and look at like the the bigger opportunity here? For us, that's been like the, the biggest help that they've been able to contribute. Yeah, and that's great advice and appreciate you sharing your learnings there. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. It's terrific to hear what Fairmart is doing and I can only be excited for what you're embarking upon. But thank you for joining me this afternoon and it'd be great to stay in touch. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate you having us and hopefully we'll be down in Australia soon as well. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feedback is always welcome. And I would appreciate introductions to potential future guests to invite onto the podcast. But that's it for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now.